We're going to look at verses 19 through 30 this week. If you're new with us, my name's Johnny Pereira. It's a privilege to have you here. I know it's never easy coming in to a new place, and, and uh, we're still excited about being in this new space, and we haven't even been in here for two months, and so we're so glad that you're here. If you're new with us, or you're a regular attender, or you're a member of this church, we're glad that you came to gather together with God's people to hear from God's word, to give God the praise that he deserves. And so we are in this series that we've entitled Anchored, walking through the book of Philippians verse by verse. We're in our seventh week in this series and um, just looking at this idea of how do we find stability in the midst of rough waters? Like, what is my life anchored in? Because depending on what I've put my anchor in today will determine whether or not I am experiencing stability even in spite of the rough waters that I may be experiencing. And the book of Philippians is such a great book to remind ourselves where our anchor, where our life ought to be rooted in, founded on, looking to for our security, and that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Philippians is a great book. Many of us who have been in church for a while know that it's a book that speaks more about joy than any other book in the New Testament. But I really like to look at it this way. It's a book that really shows us what spiritual maturity looks like. Because nothing will test your faith more than going through rough waters. Nothing will grow your faith more than walking through rough waters. And so what a book to really allow us to see, man, where am I in my walk with the Lord in my spiritual maturity? And so we come to a passage of scripture this morning that if you're like me, sometimes when you're reading through books, you often come to those sections and they mention a bunch of names and maybe I'm the only one in here, but you have a tendency to kind of skip over that and go to the next thing because you're like, well, Paul or someone's just listing a bunch of names and I don't want you to do that with this passage of scripture because in this passage of scripture, we're going to find some tremendous truths about this and it's the title of the message this morning, relationships are important. Just say that with me, relationships are important. It's important to have relationships. It's important to have friendships. And I thought to myself, it's kind of interesting. I'm going to see what, what, what's out there and, and that speaks on the importance of relationships and, and just see what society says about that before we look to the source, uh, the most important source, the one source that we know is absolutely true. I'm just curious what was being said out there about relationships and the importance of them. And I came across this recent Harvard study that concluded this, that having solid relationships in our life even promotes brain health. But that was interesting. So you can blame your brain on the type of friends you have. Just kidding. Friends help us deal with stress. It says, this, this study concluded, make better lifestyle choices that keep us strong, allow us to rebound from health issues and disease more quickly. That's what this Harvard study found. I came across this other study put together by Tom Rath, who's the Gallup organization's director. He said this, he undertook this massive study of friendship along with several leading researchers. This is what they found. His work resulted in some surprising statistic, it says, it says, if your best friend eats healthily, you're five times more likely to have a healthy diet yourself. Kind of love how just alludes to the fact that if I'm overweight, I can blame it on the friends I'm hanging out with. It's your fault. You made me eat this. 
kind of funny. It says, Mar- I thought this was interesting. Married people say friendship with one another is more than five times as important as physical intimacy within the marriage. Now, this isn't, this isn't coming from someone who's a believer from all I know. This is coming from just secular world. And it's interesting how even truth from God's word is adopted by people that don't even know him. It says, those who say they have no real friends at work, so you really don't like any of the people that you work with, have a one in 12 chance of feeling engaged in their job. That's interesting, right? Now, this is conversely, it says, if you have a best friend at work, you are seven times more likely to feel engaged in your job. It just proves the point of what we really entitled this message, that friendships or relationships are important. Now, it's great to see what society says and what you can find on Google, but let's look at the source, amen? Let's look at God's word. Let's look at what God has to say about the importance of relationships in this passage of scripture. So here's the idea that I want you to get before we read God's word today, and you're gonna see it all over these verses. It's this idea that biblical relationships affect your stability. They affect my stability, That as much as I need a relationship in Jesus Christ first and foremost so that I can experience stability in my life in spite of the rough waters that I'm experiencing, and we've been trumpeting that from the stage every week because it's in God's word. We've looked at it through these first two chapters, and we'll look at it again as we finish out this book. But there's also an importance of me experiencing biblical relationships, and they also affect the stability that I experience in difficult waters. And so what I want to do in this passage is give you five characteristics of a biblical relationship. I hope you're taking notes because I want you to think of your relationships as we walk through this passage of Scripture and ask yourself, are these the characteristics that I see in the relationships that I have? in the relationships that I may have with my spouse, in the relationship that I have with my children, in the relationship that I have with my grandchildren, in the relationships that I have with my grown sons or daughters, in the relationships that I have with my boyfriend or my girlfriend, in the relationships that I have with me, my fiance, in the relationships that I have with someone in this church, in the work relationships that I have outside of this place. Every relationship that you have I want you to hold against what we're going to see in God's word. Because biblical relationships, as we stated, affect our stability. So let's begin reading in verse 19. If you're there, say you're there. All right, let's look at verse 19. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So let's remind ourselves of, let's just just do a little bit of review here. Stick with me. Let's do a little review. Where is Paul writing this letter to the church at Philippi? Where is Paul right now? Just say it out loud. Yeah, he's in prison. He's in jail. And specifically, he's in jail. He's in prison in Rome. Now, if you have any background to the Bible whatsoever, you know there's a book called Romans. And you know that the author of that book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is Paul. 
and Paul's in Rome, which means that there's hundreds of Christians in Rome that have benefited from Paul's ministry. The church in Rome exists because God used Paul to plant that church. You're saying, why are you saying that? Because Paul's in a Roman prison where he has hundreds of Christians who have benefited from his ministry, but yet in this passage of scripture, he's saying, I need to send Timothy to you in Philippi because I have no one like him. That's interesting to me. That there was no one of the Roman Christians that cared enough to do what Paul desired them to do. I found that interesting. And what that's made me ask, and what I want to ask to you is really say that in a very real sense, we fall in one of two categories this morning. We fall into the category of people that, whose lives would be characterized by Philippians 1.21, which says what? You just look up in your Bibles. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So there's a group of people that would say, hey, my life is not about me. My life is about Jesus Christ and, and Jesus Christ first and foremost. It's not about me. For me to live is Christ. So that's a group of people. But then there's another group of people in this room that unfortunately would fall into the category, and I hope this is not you, but in verse 21, there's a group of people that would fall into this category of what Paul says, for they all seek their own interests, but none of Jesus Christ. See, those are the two categories. And unfortunately, we have a group of people in Rome that Paul specifically says are seeking their own interests and not of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what does Paul need to do? He needs to send the one person who has been showing care about him to the church at Philippi because he's also concerned and wants to know how they're doing. This is the first characteristic of a biblical relationship. You ready for this? Here it is. Number one, a genuine concern for one another's well-being. It's a key characteristic of a biblical relationship, that there is a genuine concern that you have for that person's well-being, and them for you. See that word concern that you see in, this, in these verses that you see there in verse, at the end of verse 20, it has the idea of an anxiousness. This apprehension that there could be possible danger or misfortune. So that's at the root of one's anxiousness. And Paul's like, listen, I'm going to send Timothy to you. He has genuine concern for your welfare. Like he really wants to know what's going on with you. So much so that he's willing to leave Rome and travel all the way to Philippi, which is modern day Turkey, he has this concern, I, I, I really genuinely want to know what's going on in your life. And here's what I've found about rough waters. And I'm sure you would echo this. That rough waters can be extremely lonely, can't they? Extremely lonely. They feel that way. They feel that way. And what I've found also is the enemy loves to work in isolation. That's when he does his greatest work. 
He wants you to get you alone. He wants you to isolate yourself. He wants you to, to, to embrace those feelings that you're alone. Because let's face it, these are the types of thoughts that the enemy puts into our brains. These are the types of thoughts that I have to battle just like you. I'm no different. These are the types of thoughts. No one's concerned about you. No one's concerned about you. No one sees you. You come in, you leave church, no one sees you. You go into your life group, you come in, you leave, no one sees you. And what the enemy loves to also say is, well, because nobody cares about you and nobody sees you, then you're insignificant. See, rough waters can make us feel extremely lonely. And what I've found is that when I'm battling that loneliness, you know what I find so interesting? Is the enemy always speaks in absolutes. He never says, chances are someone may not care about you. Mm. Someone may not see you. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He always says, no one cares about you. Every time you go in there, no one ever asks, never sees, never desires, right? The enemy always speaks in absolutes. So if I understand that that's how the enemy works, then that ought to motivate me even to a greater, greater degree to say there is an importance in my relationships that I am making sure that I am showing genuine care for one another's well-being. Because none of us like to be vulnerable. If we're all thinking that way, then that means also when we're in an environment like church, like this environment, when we're in, our, in the lobby, when you're in your life group, your place where you're experiencing community, and you have those thoughts because you're going through rough waters, but at the same time, you know what God's word says, how these relationships around you are to encourage you. After all, our big idea this morning is that biblical relationships affect my stability. So here's what you need to understand, and I'm sharing this with you so you're cognizant of this and you're aware of this, that when someone actually says, okay, I'm going to open up, I'm going to get, quote unquote, naked in front of you emotionally and share with you what I've been struggling, that when you feel that prompting, I want you to understand that that is from the Lord. That's not from the enemy. The enemy will say, no, 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 you hide it. No, no, you never share it. No, 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 they'll never, they'll never understand. Remember absolutes. But when you're like, no, 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 I need to share this. This is an environment where God has sovereignly placed me and that that's from the Lord. But listen to me, understand this. That when someone opens up and shares that they're hurting and what they're going through, now we on the other side have a responsibility by God to show genuine concern. Because I have two choices in that moment when I'm listening to someone pour their heart out. I can show genuine concern or I can be cavalier. See, genuine concern is not just I'm going to listen, but I'm actually going to come alongside of them and say, how can I help you? 
See, cavalier oftentimes comes across, okay, I'm going to listen to them and I'm not going to do anything about it. Because what you need to understand was when someone opens up, man, that's been, that was such a struggle for them to do so. So for you not to respond in like kind and say, wait a minute, I want to have genuine concern about your well-being. Wait a minute, there's, there's concern there because I see, I see the danger there. I see, I see the emotion there. Wait a minute, I'm going to come alongside of you and we're going to talk later about it and flesh this out, but I'm going to, I'm going to come alongside of you and I'm going to care for you and I'm going to show you through my actions that I genuinely care. Haven't we all been in situations where we're like, okay, we feel prompting of the Lord and we're like, this is an environment that God has provided for me. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna open up. And nobody really didn't do it. Nobody really did anything. You just kind of looked there, looked at you. You're crying, pouring your heart out. And then you leave a fool because you're like, see? And now the enemy just has one more bullet to put in his gun to shoot at you lies. Why? Because those of us who are listening on the other end were so consumed with our own stuff that we didn't exercise the care that God put in front of us that opportunity to show them the love of Jesus, to show them that there's other people who genuinely care for their well-being. Don't miss it. It's a key characteristic of biblical relationships. And what I find so interesting in this passage of Scripture is that the believers in Rome were so engrossed with themselves. Philippians 1, verses 15 and 16, Paul is in Rome, remember? And what does he say in verses 15 and 16? Just jot your eyes back up to those verses. He says, there's a group of people that are here in Rome and they're preaching rivalry and they're preaching envy and they're all concerned about themselves. So when I'm all concerned about myself, there's no way that I can show genuine concern for others. But did you see how God designed it? That if I'm showing genuine concern for someone else's well-being and they're thinking the same way, then we both experience what God desires us to experience in relationship because you're caring for me and I'm caring for you. But so often, man, we're so caught up in ourselves and so self-absorbed and so self-focused that we're missing opportunities to drown out the lies of the enemy by showing genuine concern for one another's well-being. Here's the second characteristic, and it's found in verses 22 and 23. Look at what Paul says. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. And I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I don't know about you, but this is a thought that comes to my mind. So I'm reading through this passage of Scripture, 19 through 30, and I see in verse 19 that Paul says, hey, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon. Then you go to verse 23, and he says it again. I hope, therefore, to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And have you ever, maybe you didn't think this when we looked at this passage of Scripture and are walking through it, but I'm like, does Timothy have a mind of his own? Like, how many of you like to be bossed around? Raise your hand. 
Shocking. No one raised their hand. Nobody likes to be bossed around. Doesn't it sound a little bit like in this passage of Scripture? Hey, Timothy, what do you think about going and traveling from Rome all the way to Turkey? You jazzed about that? You want to do that? Paul's like, man, I'll send, I'll send Timothy to you. But here's what I love. You don't see any opposition. Timothy's like, wait a minute, don't I get a say? Like, I'm my own man, don't I get a say? You don't see that anywhere. Why? Because Timothy has a love for Paul. And he has a love for this church. See, Timothy was mentored by Paul. Timothy was there when that church at Philippi was planted. He was there when Lydia put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Remember her, the fashionista of the known day? He was there for that. He saw that church planted. He's gone on missions trips with Paul. He's gone to Corinth. He's gone to Ephesus. He's traveled with Paul. Paul has invested in him. See, here's the second characteristic of a biblical relationship. Number two, there's a genuine commitment to invest in others. It's a characteristic of a biblical relationship. Man, there's a commitment for me to invest my life and what I've learned and am learning in others. Not self-absorbed, selfless. And every believer, every one of you in here who are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me tell you something and remind you something that the enemy, I'm sure, is not telling you today, that you have gone through things that other people can grow from. Every believer in Jesus Christ ought to have someone that they're investing in. Husbands, it starts with you investing in your wife. God's made you the leader of that home, and that's not to say that wives are, are, cannot be as spiritual or, frankly, more spiritual than men. That's often the case. Oftentimes, it's the wives having to invest in you as husbands because you aren't taking the responsibility that God has given to you to lead your family in the word and application of that to your lives. That's where it starts. Dads and moms, then it goes to your kids. Grandparents, it, your grandkids. You're like, well, I don't have kids. Or all my kids are out of the house. I don't have any grandkids. Awesome, because there's someone I'm sure that God has placed in your path or wanting you right now to say, no, 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 there's somebody I can invest in. I see them every week. They're in my life group. I see them every week. I pass by them as I come into this lobby and walk out of this lobby and I see them there. And every time I walk past them, I'm like, I know I need to get to, that, get to know that person more. A commitment to invest in others. Listen to me. Timothy had a heart for Paul and a heart for ministry because Paul knew the importance of investment. You're like, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to tell you. Here's what it looks like, a simple little thing to remember of what investment looks like, because here's another word that's actually a more biblical word, discipleship. That's what discipleship is. It's you saying, I'm going to take what I'm learning and what I've learned, and I'm going to pass that along to someone else. Here's what that looks like. Here's just a little pattern, a little model for investing in others. Here's the first thing, I do, you watch. 
That's where it starts. Like what's something that you are, feel like, you know what, I'm not perfect, not being obnoxious about it, not being prideful about it, but this is something that I feel like I've developed a rhythm. Who else can I help with this? Hey, let me show you what I'm doing. Let me show you what I'm doing. I do, you watch. Here's the next step. I do, you help. So it's moved from I do, you watch to I do, you help. So let me take this person and let me have them help me do this as I'm doing it. Here's the third step. You do, I help. Hey, you've been watching, Sally, you've been watching me do this for a while and been showing you how I do this and showing you how I lead this little prayer group, showing how you how I lead this little Bible study, showing you how I encourage. So here's what here's here's the next step and it's a scary one. Now you're going to do it and I'm going to help. I get the analogy of it's like when your kids are riding a bike, right? And they have those training wheels and and they're, now they're starting to use those training wheels a little less and less. And then what do you do as the dad or mom, right? You're behind now your kid and you got one hand on the seat, right? And, and, and you're still holding and now you're helping, right? Isn't that the way it's often done? That's the way I taught my kids how to ride a bike. Here's the last step. You do and I cheer. I do, you watch. I do, you help. You do, I help. You do, I cheer. You let go of the seat and you're seeing them ride the bike and what are you doing as a parent, man? You're cheering. You know how rewarding that is? To say I'm actually gonna take time out of my busy schedule and I'm gonna invest it in someone else and I'm gonna do the same things that someone's done to me. Or I'm better yet, I'm going to do for someone else what I wish was done to me. And I'm so thankful for mentors in my life. So thankful, so thankful for a mom and dad who showed me what it looks like to be consistent in, my, in their faith in spite of the rough water. So thankful for that. So thankful for I think of the youth pastors that I had. I think of Craig Colbreth. And I remember just, I remember one phrase that he said to me that he probably doesn't even remember that was so encouraging to me. I think of another youth pastor I had, Dave Shindell, who as a high school kid who felt like the Lord was wanting him to preach and speak and how he gave me opportunities to do that in the youth group and everything else. And I can't imagine how bad those those teaches and those preaches were. But he wanted to invest in me. Think about Ted Root. Podunkville, Northern Pennsylvania, the first place that God called us to minister to. And I was like, well, Lord, what in the world are we doing here? For four and a half years, investing, 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 investing. Teaching me what it looks like to love people and to care for people and to invest in people. And those drives we used to take, like the closest Sam's Club was like 45 minutes away. And he'd be like, jump in the van with me, we're going to Sam's Club. And I'm thinking, why don't we just order this stuff? Why are we taking 45 minutes each way to go to Sam's? This seems like a horrible use of time. Why? 
because he knew I needed investment. I'm sure you could talk of people as well. And some of you are like, man, I wish I had that. Well, why would you perpetuate an unhealthy cycle? See, a characteristic of biblical relationships, no, there's going to be a commitment. I'm going to have a commitment to invest in others. Who is it that I can invest in? Who is it? Some of you are here today, just as a side note, because I, I don't want anyone to walk out of here. Some of us, side note, are playing such a victim mentality and say, well, nobody's investing in me. Nobody, like, like we talk about this, nobody's investing in me. Have you asked? Have you asked? Have you asked that person, would you be willing to invest in me? Because here's what I found. Sometimes the people complain the most about not being invested in it. It's because they're not asking. And if they ask and the person says, okay, I'm going to take my time to invest in you. And then you start flaking out because you've missed two out of three meetings. Let me tell you something. That person can be investing in someone else. So don't blame that person. Make sure that you're committed to someone investing in you. That's just a side note because I don't want anyone to walk out of here without me saying that. I've had people say that about me. Well, why hasn't Johnny invested in me? Because I set up a time to meet with you two different times and you flaked out both times. See, the commitment to be invested in and the commitment to invest in others can't be centered around self. It's gotta be selfless. And I love this language of Paul because Paul literally is like, I have no one else like Timothy to care for me right now. Which just as a side note reminds me how lonely it can be to do the ministry of the work of God. Paul's like, I've given and I've given and I've given and I've given and I've given. And I got one person to care for me, and that's Timothy. But don't you see Paul's selflessness? and his genuine concern for the church at Philippi and his commitment to invest in others. He's like, I'm gonna take the one person who's caring for me and I'm gonna send them back because that's how much I care for you. That's how much I'm committed to invest in you. Here's a third characteristic. And look at verse 25. Paul says this, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now we have this other individual that Paul is invested in to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger, get this, and minister to my need. See, here's a third characteristic of a biblical relationship. There is a genuine care to meet one another's needs. What's our flesh say? Who's caring for my needs? Who's caring for me? Because I don't need anybody to teach me to care for me. I do that very well in my own flesh. How can I care for me? But I love Paul's language here. We've already seen it in his posture with Timothy, the one that he loves, the one that's caring for him. Now he's mentioning Epaphroditus. Here's a third characteristic, a genuine care to meet one another's need. And here's what we need to understand because in this time period, here's the reality. Nobody was giving Paul three meals a day in prison. If you didn't have someone bring you food, you starve. That was the Romans' way of making sure there was not overpopulation in the prisons. Nobody gives you food, we're taking you out in four weeks. No one was there to give them clothes. So if someone didn't bring them clothes, then they would die out of being exposed to the elements. 
It's not what it was like today. You need to understand that because there's significance in that because the church at Philippi loved Paul so much that they were like, we're gonna send Epaphroditus from Philippi to go all the way to Rome. So from modern day Turkey all the way to Rome, and I don't think I need to say this, but I'm just gonna say it to be obvious. There was no trains, there's no taxis, no airplanes. So this wasn't some cush like little trip that Epaphroditus was like, man, I've been wanting to get away from Philippi for a while and see the sights. So yeah, I'm looking for a great way. If you'll pay my way, man, I'll go take a trip. And then <laughs> it was a hard journey. It was a treacherous journey. But I think it's so interesting that the same concern that Timothy and Paul have for the church at Philippi, that the Philippians had the same care and concern for Paul the same commitment that Paul had to invest in Timothy, Timothy has the same commitment to invest in the church. The same concern that the church at Philippi had to send Epaphroditus to care for Paul's needs, Paul has the same concern to send Epaphroditus back to them. See how a biblical relationship works? You never have to worry about saying who's going to meet my needs because when you're showing selflessness and humility, which is mentioned at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, you're doing that for one another. There's, there's no ill will there because you're both are thinking and having the mind of Christ, Philippians 2.5. It's interesting, the resume, look at it. Look at verse 25. Look at how Paul speaks of Epaphroditus. He calls him my brother. That literally has the idea of he, has, he, he has shares a spiritual bloodline with me. He's put his faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is changing him through the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ is doing the same thing to me. Man, we're brothers, we're brothers. Then he says, we're fellow workers. Like we're both working to advance the kingdom of God here on this earth. Like we share that together. We're not only brothers, but we're fellow workers. And notice what else he says. He says, fellow soldier. In other words, man, I got some scars. I'm in a battle. I'm fighting the good fight. But I got a brother here in Epaphroditus who's a fellow soldier with me. Man, he's arm in arms with me. He's fighting a battle as well. Man, we're together in this. And then speaking of the Philippians, he says, hey, he's your minister and he's ministered to my needs. You know what I think is so interesting about Epaphroditus is you would have never heard of him if it wasn't for Paul putting his name in here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul never wrote a, or Epaphroditus never wrote a book in the New Testament, never preached a sermon, never started a church, never went, went to an unreached people group, didn't do any of those things. But what Epaphroditus did do is he showed genuine care for someone else's needs. Don't misunderstand the power of that. That I promise you that there's people in here that are just waiting for you to ask, how are you really doing? What do you really need? Once you get vulnerable, and I'm, I'm serious, I have genuine concern for you. I want to know how I can meet your need. 
I want to know how I can invest in you and help you walk through what you're walking through because I've walked through something similar. Oh, it's not the same, but, but let me tell you, there's hope and there's grace in that. See, genuine concern to meet one another's needs because let's face it, we all have a need to be loved, don't we? We all have a need to know, man, I have a brother or sister in Christ who loves me. We all have a need to be supported, to know that we have a fellow worker walking side by side. That even when we feel like we're getting weary and well-doing, no, 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 I got brothers and sisters around me who are going after the same thing that want to see the kingdom of God advanced. Man, I have a need to be prayed for. I have a need for people really to surround me and to pray for me. To take the time to actually say, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm not just going to do it when we meet in group and life group, but I'm actually going to follow up with you during the week. We're actually going to schedule a time to do coffee and, and to pray together. I'm actually going to call and, and see how you're doing. See, Paul describes Epaphroditus in those terms. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. He's a minister to my need. And oh, that we would be able to be friends to people that they would say, man, let me tell you about her. She's my sister. She's my fellow worker. She's my fellow soldier. She's my minister in my time of need. And don't hear me say something that I'm not saying. Jesus Christ is the ultimate for us in that. Hear me on that. Whenever I put someone on a pedestal that only Jesus Christ deserves, we experience unmet expectations. And I just said that two weeks ago. So we've covered that from this stage. But there is also an importance of taking responsibility as children of God to be the friends that God has designed us to be for one another. Here's the fourth characteristic. Let's look at verses 26 through 28. Speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul says this, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not only him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to send him therefore that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Here's the fourth characteristic of a biblical relationship is there is a genuine compassion for one another. There's an individual that I want to call to your attention. His name is Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may know him. Some of you may have read some things. Probably some of you have not. He was born in February 4th, 1906 and lived till April 9th, 1945. He was a German pastor. He was a theologian. But he was also an anti-Nazi dissident. And he wrote many works. One of those works that he's pro probably most well known for is his little book, The Cost of Discipleship. Let me just say, if you find anything Diedrich Bonhoeffer wrote, it's a great read. But he was known for his staunch resistance to the Nazi dictatorship. In fact, he was arrested in April 1943 by a Gestapo and imprisoned for one and a half years. And later he was transferred to a Nazi concentration camp because he was accused of a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And so he was quickly tried, and unfortunately, he was 
hung on April 9th, 1945, just as the Nazi regime was collapsing. But I introduced this gentleman because this is what he said. He said, we must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. God will, constant, will be constantly crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and petitions. It's not all about you. And it's not all about me. And so often in our relationships with one another, it is. And it shouldn't be. It's about how is God interrupting my plans and how is God's plans intersecting with my plans. And oftentimes when that happens, you know what that means is my plans go by the wayside and I have a choice. God, am I going to take this opportunity and see it as something that's been given from you? And am I going to say and trust that you know what? I need to show genuine concern here. You know what? I need to take advantage and say, I'm going to make this investment. I'm going I'm to show compassion here. And I'm going to allow you to interrupt my plans. I'm going to submit to you, better word, in you interrupting my plans. See, I see selflessness as a, with Epaphroditus in these verses, don't you? Verses 26 through 28. Here's what I find so interesting is Epaphroditus is sick. Somehow he developed some type of sickness and Epaphroditus probably traveled with others in his entourage to make this long journey. So they've gone back to the Philippians and they've shared how Epaphroditus can't travel back right now because he's so ill. And you would think that Epaphroditus would be like, hey, Philippian church, I want you to know what I've done for you. Actually, I'm glad that you're kind of worried about how I'm doing. Haven't we been like that? Man, I wish someone would worry about how I'm doing. But you don't see Epaphroditus do that. No, he shows this, this burden because he's like, these people don't need to be worrying about me. I wanted to do this because I wanted to show Paul how much I love him. I wanted to take those things that represented love and that food and that clothing for you, Paul, because I wanted you to see how much this church loves you and how much I love you. But look at Paul, Paul's love and saying, man, I want to send Epaphroditus back to you well. Paul's love for Epaphroditus. See, there's this compassion for one another. And listen to me, some of you are not experiencing that in your relationships that love, that selfless love for one another. And here's what I've found in my life. That whenever I'm not exercising selfless love in my relationships, my relationship to my wife, or my relationship to my children, my relationship to the friendships that are around me, my relationship to this body of Christ, when I'm not showing the type of selfless love that I know that God desires for me, it's because somewhere I'm off in my relationship with the Lord. See, we know what Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, I can't love with compassion, or I can't show compassion or love to one another like is spoken of in this passage of Scripture if I'm not growing in my love for Jesus. And a great marker of my spiritual maturity is what do my relationships look like in my life? Here's the last characteristic, and it's found in verse 29 and 30. We close out chapter two this way. Look at what it says. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ. 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I just think it's quite interesting. That of all the things that Paul could have said to the church at Philippi and how they should receive Epaphroditus, like make sure that you give him the food that he needs, make sure that you give him the clothing that he needs after a long journey, make sure that, that you take care of him, he was sick. Notice what he tells them that he wants from them to show Epaphroditus. He says, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. See, here's the fifth characteristic a biblical relationship, there's a genuine comprehension to appreciate one another. Paul says, I want you to honor Epaphroditus. Why? Because he nearly died. He gave himself totally to the work of Christ and he risked his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He gave it all. He showed concern. He showed compassion. He had a commitment to invest in me. And there needs to be a comprehension in you, church at Philippi, to appreciate him, to honor him. Man, how we need to hear this. Because here's what I've found. The people that often give the most are appreciated the least. Because they're not doing it for that. They're not doing it for a pat on the back. Their motives are selfless. But they're human. They need to be appreciated. They need to be honored. And I wonder how many of us, man, we've been like spoiled kids in our relationships. So quick to point out, this person hasn't done this for me. Why did they do it this way? Why did they give me this when I wanted this? And we're like spoiled kids in our households where we're never grateful and we're never thankful for anything. And we're just, why? Because it's me, 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 me. But what I've found is so true in a biblical relationship is there are times where, where we understand there is a biblical mandate to honor others who are showing us the care, the compassion, the investment, the concern that is necessary for us to live lives of stability. And I wonder, when's the last time that you said to that person, in the eyes, I want to thank you for how you did this specifically. Not just, oh, I want to thank you. No, no, no. Specifically, I want to thank you. When's the last time you wrote a note? When's the last time you sent an encouraging text? When's the last time you said, man, I want to take you out for coffee and I want you to understand how much this relationship means to me? When's the last time you did that with your life group leader? open up their home every week, serve you food every week because you'll never sign up. Nobody's talked to me. 
We got people pouring out their lives everywhere around this place. When's the last time you said, I want you to know how much I appreciate you? Kids, when's the last time you've done that to mom or dad? Husband, when's the last time you've done that to your wife who's propping you up, who's telling you you can do it in this difficult time? Wives, when's the last time you've done that to your husband because he's propping you up, he's encouraging you to press on in this difficult season? Man, we need to have a comprehension to appreciate one another because it's in God's word. I want every head bowed and every eye closed this morning and we've walked through these characteristics of a biblical relationship. And I asked you to take your relationships and to lay them before God's word, before this passage of scripture. And if you're like myself, this week I've looked at some of these and I'm like, God, let me repent for an area in my life that I've been not showing the concern that I need to or the commitment to invest or the compassion that I need to show or the comprehension to appreciate or the care for someone's need. I'm no different than you. But the place where these types of relationships should be found ought to be the church of Jesus Christ. And if we're showing this care and this concern and this compassion and this commitment and a comprehension to appreciate one another and to honor those who are giving their lives for the work of Christ, I'm telling you what, we're going to have to either have another service or get more seats. And none of this can happen without us exalting Jesus Christ to the place that He deserves in our life.